Uh, our psalm this uh, morning is, uh, is about all of the redeemed of God uh, in a very uh, intimate and personal uh, way. Uh, in many religions, if not all of them, uh, God is far away, very distant, uh, perhaps unknowable. Uh, we must take pilgrimages or go to some special priest in special clothes and engage in special rites. But here, the psalmist is telling us something that's radically different about the Christian faith, uh, that God is very intimate with us and that we are very special uh, to him. Uh, there's really no historic uh, context uh, that tells us as to why David wrote this psalm, other than perhaps verses 19 to 22. Uh, he's encountering uh, enemies of the faith, and uh, so he is uh, describing his own special relationship with God. Uh, but it's not only his own special relationship, it's your special relationship. Uh, in particular, that God's knowledge of and presence with and creation of each of us causes uh, the psalmist or causes us to align ourselves uh, with the way of God and uh, to petition him for the heart to continue to do so. We, we begin in verses uh, 1 to 6 uh, with uh, God's knowledge of us, that he knows us in a very intimate and special way. Theological term uh, for this is uh, uh, the omniscience of God, that God knows everything. Uh, but that's kind of a transcendent way of speaking of the knowledge of God. Here, the knowledge of God is very intimate. Uh, it's... Uh, uh, touches us in a very profound, personal way. Uh, you and I know that God knows all things actual and possible in one eternal moment. It's the grandness of the greatness of God. But here it's personal. Uh, he knows uh, you in a very personal way, very intimate way. Uh, that God knows you in terms of interest and affection. You might say, well, how well does he really know me? Uh, well, the psalmist is going to tell us. David tells us uh, that God has uh, searched uh, and known us. It's a penetrating knowledge and very intimate. That nothing is hidden from him and neither can he be deceived or tricked. He knows everything about us. Uh, the extent is captured in a very beautiful figure of speech, the technical word for the figure is a merism. It says, when I, when I sit down and, and I rise up, you know these things about me, David, David is saying. Well, again, the merism, two extremes, sitting down and rising up, but the point of the merism, he knows everything in between, everything. Uh, when we get up in the morning to face the day and we go to bed at night as we finish the day. Well, certainly God knows those things, but he knows everything in between in an absolute and total way. He understands our thoughts. He knows what we are thinking. Uh, verse 2, the word, uh, the phrase, from afar, uh, is uh, a temporal reference to eternity past. Uh, God's knowledge is eternal. 
there's never been a time in which God has not known you in a very personal, intimate way. Uh, this knowledge of you, again, uh, braces the eternal decrees of God. Uh, and respecting the, uh, the redeemed, uh, he knows you affectionately, and that's why he sent his uh, son uh, to die in the spirit to apply the death and resurrection reality of it to your heart. Uh, verse 3, he winnows. Uh, New American Standard reads, he scrutinizes. It's really something of an agricultural term, of the winnowing of grain. Uh, that he examines our journeying and our lying down to rest against another merism of uh, interest and concern. Expressed in a very profound, beautiful way in verse, verse 4. Even before there is a word on our tongue, he knows it. Uh, the figure engages the thought process and the speech that follows. Profound, the majesty of the knowledge of God of each of us. We, we think and we, uh, we, from our thoughts, fashion a word to speak. God knows it all. Uh, verse 5, you have enclosed me. It's a military term often used in military context of, of an army that besieges a city. Uh, sieging a city from the standpoint it totally surrounds the city so that no one can get out and nothing can come in. So that eventually it will capitulate because uh, the people are hungry and thirsty. They simply give up surrender, uh, that God uh, is, is, is about us totally like an army engaging in a siege. Uh, the merism is behind and before. Uh, in front of us, behind us, to our right and to our left, there is God. That he has absolutely enclosed us with his uh, majestic presence in the sense that we are so special to him. I think of, uh, of uh, the love uh, between the people that are perhaps uh, courting to be married, always wishing to be there. Uh, God loves us and he is, he is always there. The parallel line is he sets his hand upon us. His knowledge is controlling. It's a very beautiful thought to me. Uh, it's not uh, popularly held in Christian circles, but there is to me an expression here of cause and effect. Uh, that the omniscience of God is, uh, is so inspirational and wonderful, uh, so vast that it is incomprehensible that he would take such interest in us and be so intimate with us, but he is. Again, you and I believe that God is uh, transcendent, so majestic that he seemingly is far away, but here he is intimate and personal in his knowledge of us. And regardless of your circumstances, you are never forgotten, never neglected. 
because of who you are to God. Very special. Uh, I will tell you that more often than not, I, I uh, find myself praying and thinking that God simply has taken the receiver off the hook. But I know the theology of that is profoundly incorrect. That's only my feelings. This is expression of the truth. Uh, that there is no receiver, of course. Uh, but God has never forgotten us. Could never neglect us because we are his sons and daughters. Our every need is, is of interest to, to him. Uh, because of who he is and who we are. And that we are never insignificant or irrelevant to God. Uh, that God makes no mistakes. Uh, in David's mind, he was special to God. But so are you. If you're numbered among the redeemed of God. Uh, and so God's, uh, God's presence is total and absolutely with uh, with the redeemed. But again, the point of uh, the expressions of the grandeur here, of the majesty of God and his knowledge of us, uh, is, uh, is to provoke us to purity uh, and intensity of service to him. Uh, and that we will see as the psalm begins to develop. But, uh, but the point of the psalm so God's knowledge of us is total, and it should be so wonderful to us that it should uh, uh, provoke us uh, to uh, the purity of service worthy of the God who knows us. Uh, from the doctrine of, uh, of omniscience, uh, we, uh, in verses 7 to 12, transition to the omnipresence of God, uh, that God is everywhere. Uh, and uh, that means that he's everywhere and all the time with us. Uh, this section uh, begins uh, in verse 7, begins with a rhetorical question. Where can I go from thy spirit, or where can I flee from thy presence? By rhetorical question, we mean that the answer is obvious. Uh, nowhere. Uh, it is impossible to absent oneself from the divine presence. There is no place that God is not present. I'm reminded occasionally when I read the newspaper of, uh, of an airplane or a ship that goes down the Pacific Ocean, so vast, can they ever be found? Can the Coast Guard get to them? God knows. We could never go to a place where God does not know where we are. All the difficulties that might attend to that. Uh, the answer is expanded upon in three conditional statements. Uh, the first is in verse 8. Uh, if I could climb to heaven, you are there. If I could make my bed in Sheol, behold, you are there. Hebrew Bibles simply behold you. We add that you are there, the majesty of God. But again, you see the merism, the figure of speech are two extremes, but it encompasses every point in between. Heaven and hell, every point in between, the presence of God envelops us, his majesty. 
The second hypothetical takes us horizontally, verses 9 and 10. Uh, the wings of uh, the dawn is, a, again, another figure of speech. Uh, technical word is a zoomorphism, uh, borrowing from the animal kingdom and making application to God. But the importance is uh, the speed. Uh, when you uh, watch sunset, of course, the, the light of the sun is reaching you at the speed of light. Uh, meaning that David is engaging the hyperbole of traveling at the speed of light. Uh, or if he could then travel to the most remote, uh, remote parts of the sea. But, uh, God would be there. Again, notice uh, this very common figure of speech in Psalm 139, the merism. The sun rises in the east, uh, to David, the ocean was on his, on his west. So he is rocket man, moving from east to west. But at no point is he ever vacant the presence of God. He cannot depart from the divine presence. Notice what he says of that in verse 10. Even there thy hand will lead me, and thy right hand will lay hold of me. The, uh, the first verb here is uh, used in Psalm 23.3. He guides me in the paths of righteousness for his name's sake. That uh, in the profoundness of the majesty of God to all of the redeemed, he guides us at every point of time. Always with us. Uh, so earth-shaking it, it uh, uh, reminds us of the greatness of our God. Many denominations in the Protestant faith say you can fall away from God. The psalmist is expressing the utter impossibility of that uh, because he is our guide throughout all of life from beginning to end. If it were not so, none of us could ever make it. Uh, the path and the way is so dark and chaotic and confusing. If we didn't have God as a guide, we would never get to the other side. The point of the psalm is God is our guide at every point. Uh, the, the, the two verbs of this text uh, are used in another very beautiful psalm. One we studied uh, a few Sundays back. Psalm 73, verses 23 and 24. Nevertheless, I am continually with thee. Thou hast taken hold of my right hand. With thy counsel thou wilt guide me and afterwards receive me to glory. It's a psalm of Asaph. Uh, he's encountered a very difficult uh, a theological problem, but he knows that God is his guide. And that God has met him and guided him out of that problem to understand the truth, the reality of the majesty of God. Uh, 
that God will guide him and afterwards receive him to glory. How could you ever vacate yourself from the majesty of God? If you could, you would never get to glory. That's the point of the song. The point of the reality of the majesty of the redeemed to the one who redeems us. I love the phrase, and afterwards receive me to glory. It's a measure of the absoluteness of the majesty of God. I'm not suggesting it on occasions we don't wander, but, uh, but God is there. God is there. And uh, God will lead us back. It's the presence of God that will secure repentance in our return. The majesty of God. The theology, of course, informs uh, the doctrine of sanctification. That God does not leave us unattended. I uh, always struggled with this. In particular, denominations that... Uh, that say that we can come to faith and then go our own way. Uh, David is simply telling us that uh, that cannot be, that God will lead us and guide us. And even if we wander, he will guide us back. And the fact that he does never leave us to wander self-directed should be one of the greatest comforts of our life, of the majesty of God when we come to faith in Jesus Christ. And because we are sons, he is our guide throughout all of life. He'll see us to the end. He will see that we come to glory. The third hypothetical is in verses 11 and 12. If a darkness overwhelms me and the light is night, Uh, the, uh, the darkness here uh, is an association with, uh, with evil. Uh, but more importantly, it's a figure of speech uh, engaging every event of the darkness. It is as if evil is attacking David and attempting to crush him. Uh, but even there, it's light to God. It's a beautiful illustration of this in the language of uh, the Gospel of John, chapter 1, verse 5. The light shines in the darkness. The New American Standard reads, and the darkness did not comprehend it. Uh, there's another translation that I uh, personally prefer, uh, and the darkness uh, did not overtake it, that the darkness attempted to crush Jesus Christ, the God-man, but it could not. Uh, he defeats the darkness, it is a beautiful expression of the majesty of God. It's almost as if uh, uh, in the nighttime, darkness is winning. And then uh, we have sunrise and the darkness is in retreat. And it retreats so rapidly, reminder of, uh, of the fact that the sun wins. Uh, the darkness uh, could not contain him and stop him. It's almost as if the darkness tries to stop the sunrise, uh, tries to overwhelm it, uh, but it cannot, and the light wins. And so it is with us. Something of an expression of this in Psalm 138 and verse 7. 
Though I walk in the midst of trouble, thou wilt revive me. Thou wilt stretch forth thy hand against the wrath of my enemies, and thy right hand will save me. Of course, you see there another figure of speech, uh, anthropomorphisms. God doesn't have a right hand. Uh, but the psalmist is using the, 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 the language that uh, he can use from his vocabulary to express the majesty of God. Uh, and so from uh, omniscience to omnipresence, we are special. And it is meant to stir us to uh, purity of worship and service because of the greatness of God. Uh, verses 13 to 18, we, we encounter another majestic truth about God's love and affections for us, namely that he created us in a very special way. You and I know that he created us in his image. Uh, and so we are very special to God, created in his image. Uh, that special creation described in verses 13 to 18 it's really the greatest of all, I think, of, of, uh, of uh, the words of the intensity of the affections of what God is to us. That God's presence and knowledge, of course, is so special because we are. And here, in verse 13, uh, you formed uh, my inward parts. He formed us in the womb like, like a weaver weaves a special uh, piece of clothing or cloth in the hands of God. God weaved us in the womb. Uh, naturally, of course, you and I know that the child is the product, uh, the natural gener generation of, of the parents, but supernaturally, God is the ultimate cause, the ultimate creator. Uh, behind every work of the parents is, of course, uh, the work of God. And the reference here, of course, is to the embryo and the majesty of God as a weaver forming us in a very beautiful, majestic way. And the language here dotes upon his work as it should. The prospect is so staggering that David, for the first time in verse 14, erupts in thanksgiving uh, and wonderment because he is so special. But all of the redeemed are so special to God. Within the womb, of course, he established the skeletal structure so defining of our existence. And more intensely, using a synonym of weaving, David says, we were skillfully wrought. Fearfully and wonderfully made. Now, the passive voice is so instructive here because it means that God is the one who is acting and uh, we were passive. Again, the context is the embryo. Uh, it's very interesting that this, uh, this verb uh, is used by the craftsmen in Exodus making the tabernacle as an expression of the glory of God where God meets his people in a profoundly special way but here, uh, as, uh, as the craftsmen were making the tabernacle, uh, so God is the ultimate craftsman forming us in the womb. 
Exodus 38, 23, and with him was Aholiab, the son of Ahi Shmach of the tribe of Dan, an engraver, an engraver, and skillful workman, and a weaver in blue and purple and scarlet material and fine linen. He's making the tabernacle using skilled craftsmen. And so it is God forming us in the womb. It means we are works of art. And God is the ultimate artist forming us. As the tabernacle was beautiful, we are beautiful. Now some of you are probably thinking, well, Phil, what about? Come back to the song. What God does sometimes is mysterious and unknowable to us, but that he is doing it is profoundly majestic and utter wonderment that there are no mistakes with God. We call certain things mistakes. I think God would see it otherwise. And we should behold uh, every life is special. Every life is, uh, is uh, in the image of God. We should be very careful how we perceive it and the adjectives we might attach to it. We should use the theology of the language of Psalm 139. That we were made for worship and we were made to display God. That's the point of the tabernacle. The artists and the craftsmen were displaying something of the majesty of God uh, that the entire universe is his temple. But he meets with his people in a localized place and it's interesting that the Apostle Paul in 1 Corinthians chapter 6, uh, verse 19, uh, tells the church, or do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit who is in you? In the Old Testament, God, uh, in a localized way, lived in the temple. Now we're the temple, and he lives in us. Uh, in the Old Testament, the temple was very special. In the New Testament, we are very special. The redeemed of God are very special. And God sets in motion his eternal decrees respecting his work. Verse 16, Thine eyes have seen my unformed substance, and in thy book they were all written, the days that were ordained for me, when as yet there was not one of them. Uh, the figure of speech, of course, is words written in a book, but God has no book. God needs no book. God doesn't even need to go to the library to learn something because he knows all things actual and possible in one eternal moment. It's the majesty of God. Symbolic of the eternal decrees and purposes of God. And the parallel line is the days uh, were, were, were literally, uh, literally formed. Uh, again, we have the passive voice, God forming, God eternally establishing uh, every event of our lives purposefully for his glory. And the figure again is uh, the events of the day, meaning that all was foreordained by the divine will. It's the language of the psalmist. I understand that theology here is 
uh, very difficult. Uh, the church has uh, argued over these things for hundreds of years. But I think there is no argument with David that God has ordained all of our days. That's confirmed in the phrase, before there was not even one of them. All was planned in eternity past. Uh, look at the response of David, I think, confirming that theology. Erupts in praise, verse 17, How precious also are thy thoughts to me, O God! How vast is the sum of them! like he's trying to drink the Pacific Ocean. He cannot. He's attempting to get his mind around something that's so majestic and so great. He is so special because his God is so special. And uh, if you're numbered among the redeemed, so are you. Uh, the word precious, how precious are your thoughts, that word is used of the valuable stones found in the construction of the temple. The significance is, is that God does profound work, beautiful work. And he made us for himself to reflect his beauty and his character. That's why we exist. It's a point of the psalm. Uh, the majesty of our special relationship with God is to drive us uh, to expand the majesty and the beauty of his presence. And when you lose this, ladies and gentlemen, you lose your way in life. This is why I believe in our culture we are experiencing incredibly high suicide rates, substance abuse, and on and on. Because we've lost uh, the grandness of the majesty of the God of Scripture. When you lose that, you lose your way. Uh, Grace Bible Church, we attempt to cover it recover it and express it so that we would understand that we were made in a special way in the image of God. And that image is to uh, advertise the majesty of God wherever we go. It's, it's more than just evangelism. It's living of the life, telling a story like the tabernacle in the temple did. I would remind you that, uh, that the abortionist does more than kill. He insults God. Tries to take his place. He degrades and cheapens the essence of life itself. It's really the theology of, uh, of, of death that embraces much of our culture. It cheapens life. When you cheapen life, you degrade God. You degrade his creation. We recover that in the church, and it's recovered from Holy Scripture. It's a majesty of what uh, David is telling us, uh, the majesty of God. And again, I would remind you that if David is using the language of the skilled artisans uh, making the tabernacle, and uh, the laborers who are gathering uh, precious stones for the building of a Solomon's temple, then you are in every way a work of art to the eternal God. 
And because you are special, it should purify your, your service, your motives, your worship, your prayers, and everything you do. It's uh, the point of the psalm. And that really transitions uh, uh, for us in verses 19 to 24. The final section, uh, David affirms his loyalty to God and aligns himself with the way of God. David petitions God here in something that you and I cannot do in the New Testament. Uh, he petitions God to kill the wicked. Again, uh, in the New Testament, Jesus, uh, as, uh, as the inaugurator of the New Covenant, tells us a higher way. Pray for your enemies. Love, love your enemies. Uh, the majesty of Christ in the new creation, of course. Uh, but the point for David is that uh, God's enemies are his enemies. And they are described in verse 20 as pretenders. And David rejects them. He rejects pretense. Uh, something that you and I must, uh, must grapple with in our text. If God is so great and we are so special, then we should be very careful thinking that we can pretend our way to God. We can trick him into thinking that we belong to him. You cannot trick God because of what he knows about you, that he is with, uh, he's made you special. Very careful of pretense and engaging with the outward forms of religion uh, to gain God's favor because you cannot do that. If you know Christ, uh, you understand that. The greater reality is that the Christian faith, the cause that you and I serve, deserves more than pretense. The cause deserves more than mere association, passivity. I belong to the church. I go four times a year. I'm so thankful for Jesus. You understand this song. If you reject passivity, you become active. Your motives and your thoughts and your worship are purified and uh, you go in obedience and affection and love because you're special to God and he is special to you. That our faith commands a purity of heart and motive in God's way. Uh, don't come to God half-heartedly. If you understand this psalm, there's nothing half-hearted in God's affection for you. And so don't be half-hearted to him. Engage him with uh, all of your heart and all of your mind and all of your soul because of who he is and who you are to him. And so David prays, search me, O God, and know my heart. Try me and know my thoughts. And see if there be any wicked way in me and lead me in the way everlasting. He goes through all of the theology and the ends in a prayer. We could pray this every day because of the greatness of God purifying our thoughts. Uh, but lead me in the everlasting way. Uh, that's what God does to the redeemed. If you don't know him, I remind you that the, Jesus Christ gave his life as a ransom, the one for the many, to save his people. He went to the cross to shed his blood, to uh, give ransom for their sins. And then he dispatched the Spirit of God to apply that to the heart of uh, 
of those who he intended to redeem, to make them his sons and daughters, that we might revel forever in the majesty of who God is and who we are, that we are special because he is so very special.